Gospel of Matthew, and we'll begin in chapter 2. Well, we're finally getting some winter weather around here in Texas. It's about as good as it gets if you're new here, okay? So if you can make it through this, you can make it through a Texas winter. Uh, just even thinking about winter kind of reminds me when I was just growing up as a kid. I grew up in Montana, and so if you want to see a winter wonderland, you just visit there any month of the year at work, okay? You could get snow any time. And one of the highlights for me as a boy growing up in Montana was that we would get to go with my dad hunting. We'd go hunt deer and elk, and these were always real adventures. I don't think I really fully understood the scope of the adventure until I got older, because we would we went places that no truck was ever meant to go, and we were, you know, and I didn't realize how precarious some of these situations my dad managed to get us into. My dad liked to go hunting with an older guy by the name of Tom Coburn, and uh, Tom had worked for the Department of Agriculture, as did my dad, and was very familiar with all the ranches and the national forests and the place in the central Montana where we lived. And Tom always had this dog he named Candy. And this and he was always feeding this giant collie. It looked like Lassie, these white candies. Okay, so he was always feeding him. So we'd take Tom and we'd go out hunting. And, it, you know, I could tell my dad really trusted Tom because when we were in a jam, he'd like, Tom, what do you think? And I'm like, I think I'll get out of the truck here. And he'd get out and he'd get us out of some pretty bad situations. Tom knew the lay of the land. And Tom Tom seemed to have a, a kind of a clue where the deer and the elk might be, and I think my dad just appreciated his company. So one of our ex- hunting excursions, we go out, and it was decided that my dad and my brother Travis were going to go in one direction. Tom and I were going to go the other. We are going to make this big, huge circle, and we'd eventually meet back at the truck. Okay, so that's the game plan. We'd done things like that before. Oftentimes, my dad would just send my brother and I. We'd run through the coolies, make a little noise, and that idea to flush out the deer and elk. But this time, we were going to split up, make this huge circle, and see what we could find. So... We're on our way, and we've been out a long time now. I don't know if you've ever had experience with, like, high mountain snow, but it is hard to walk around, especially when you're a little kid, okay? I mean, you know, we'd be bundled up in these snowmobile suits, and you got long underwear and pants and gloves and mittens, and you're just kind of like this, and you're trying to make your way through the snow. And even for the adults, it's hard, okay? And especially when you're wearing half your body weight and clothing as a kid, okay? And you're trying to make your way. And so, you know, we'd, we'd have to stop at different times, and Tom's kind of looking over and kind of scoping it out. And so we're we're going for a long time, and I'm I'm getting tired, and I am uh, I'm really clueless as to where I might be, and I'm thinking we actually are lost. Now, for a kid to think that they're lost, that's one thing. But where I lived in Montana, every year hunters would get lost in the forest, and sometimes those had some pretty tragic endings, meaning they didn't get found until it was too late. And I'm thinking, we're lost. I have no clue where is. Where is that truck? And so I'm following Tom, you know. I mean, Tom knows, right? Well, finally, we, we stop again. I'm tired. We eat our snack. And I, you know, I'm like, I'm remembering like, oh yeah, you eat your food if you think you're in a dangerous situation. And I'm pretty certain we're lost. So now I wanted to ask Tom if we were lost, but my dad had trained my, my brothers and I not to make any noise when we're out there. And like, don't talk. He figured we were making enough noise as it was, just walking around. And Tom wasn't a bigger talker anyway, and so I'm like, well, I, I've got to know. So finally we're sitting there. I go, Tom, are we lost? Tom kind of looks around a little bit, and then he looks at me and he goes, I don't think so. And then we got up from there, and we kept hiking. And, and after a while, lo and behold, we come through, and There's that Ford truck. I'd never been so happy to see that truck in my entire life. And once again, Tom had shown himself to be a a trustworthy guide. Now, it's one thing to follow someone who knows the lay of the land. 
out in the middle of nowhere. But it's another to who you're following in life and who's going to be your God and your guide, not only in this life, but in the life to come. And there is one thing that God wants absolutely certain and clear in every person's mind, and and that is this, that his son, Jesus, is God, and he's to be the guide of your life. He's God, and you can trust him, and he can truly transform your life. And that is why God has had written the Gospel of Matthew, to put before humanity the truth about his son, who he really is, And that we can really trust him. You know, the most important aspect of your life is this. What do you really believe about Jesus Christ? Is he really God? A lot of folks say, oh, yeah, Jesus, he was a man. No one is no one's going to you say Jesus, man. Everybody's like, yeah, that's fine. I mean, there's all sorts of historical records. Christians, non-Christians, they write about Jesus. You're not going to get anybody quibble with you about is he a man? The question is. Is he God? For if he's God, that changes everything. You know, you need to to know for certain that Jesus Christ is God. And that's why Matthew begins as he does. If you want a lesson on evangelism and discipleship, take it from the Apostle Matthew. Begin with the deity of Christ. Show people who Jesus really is. Now, he's going to kind of, as we're making our way through Matthew 2 and 3 here, he's going to point out four just remarkable ways we know for certain that Jesus is God. And the first one we actually saw last time we looked at Matthew, and that is the deliverance that he experiences from his enemies. God, God has sent his son, and he is going to protect him and guide him to make sure that Jesus is in a position to fulfill the very reason why he sent him, and that is to redeem a lost humanity by actually being the one who will die and pay the penalty for their sins. And so remember in Matthew chapter 2, these magi, these Parthian wise men come and they make entrance in Jerusalem. They travel for a long time. They show up with all their cavalry, their contingent of servants. They make a stir in Jerusalem. They're going, hey, where is he? He was born king of the Jews. Well, there was a small problem with that. King Herod had already received that title from the Roman Senate and the Roman Emperor that he was the king of the Jews. He's serving in that place. And so this didn't make him all that happy when people walk into town saying, where's the king of the Jews? We've come to worship him. Well, he so what he did is he actually ascertained. He went to the leading priests and scribes. He said, all right, where is this Messiah, this son of David, son of Abraham? Where is he to be born? And like, wow, Herod, that's pretty easy. He's he's to be born in Bethlehem. Let me show you Micah chapter five, verse two, 700 years ago, it was written right down here that new Bethlehem. And you can see it right there in Matthew chapter two, verses five and six, Bethlehem, Judea. This is where the eternal one is to be born. He is the one who's going to come forth. He is going to be a ruler and he's going to shepherd my people, Israel. You want to find him? He's about six miles south of here. Well, Herod's like, no, 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 I'm a pretty busy man just getting do, done with this census here. So he goes back and he approaches these magi, he calls them. You can actually read from the text. He does this secretly. He says, listen, guys, I'm in charge here. I'm, I'm the king of the Jews, if you've forgotten. But listen, what I want you to do is I want you to go and you go find that little baby, that child. You go figure out exactly where he is. Make real careful. You've got the right one. 
And then you come back and report to me because I run the show here. Okay. Now, the Romans were already fearful of the Parthians. They'd actually kicked the Romans out before. And so there's some pretty serious political tension that's going on here. So Herod sends the Magi down to Bethlehem. He actually tells them where you're going to find him. Uh, you know, all those scriptures say he's be born in Bethlehem. You want to find him? That's where he's down. Now that star appears, guides these magi right to where the Savior has been born. You can read about it in the text. They worship him, verse 11. You want to see what worship looks like? Verse 11's got it. You fall to the ground and you give it all. And they give these gifts of worship to not just a king, but the king, the God-man. And in verse 12, having been warned by God and dream not to return to Herod, the magi left for their own country by another way. God warns them and says, some real bad things are about to happen. You guys go a different way. Well, how's Herod going to handle this? Well, look at verse 13 here. You want to see one of the ways we know for certain that Jesus is God? Look at how the Father delivers him from danger. Verse 13. Now, when they had gone, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Get up, take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt. And remain there until I tell you, for Herod is going to search for the child to destroy him. Now, God sends in this dream. He has this angel. okay, and it appears to Joseph. He says, get up and flee to Egypt. Now, one of the things you want to note of Joseph, he's noted as a righteous man, is he responds immediately to God's direction. He's not like. Well, Mary's a little tired, you know, with the new baby. We're not sleeping as well. It's hard to get adjusted. Egypt's 90 miles away. Um, Give us some time on this one. No, he responds immediately. And so he makes his way. They make their way to Egypt. And and now what's going to happen here is God is going to have his son, who's actually been born an infant, so the eternal son of God comes in human form. He's a baby. He's going to have him carried about 90 miles to outside of Herod's jurisdiction in Egypt. Now, there were actually millions of Jews living in Egypt. Egypt had been a place where Jews had fleed all the way since the time of Abraham for protection. For instance, just in Alexandria alone, there was estimated at this time to be about a million Jews just living in that one city. So don't think it was just like one little isolated little Jewish family hanging out in Egypt here until Herod gets done with his little anger fit that he's got going through. No, there's there is all sorts of protection and fellow Jews to be living among. So he says, get up and I want you to go right now because Herod is going to try to destroy the child. So verse 14, look at Joseph. So Joseph got up and he took the child and his mother while it was still night. He didn't wait for morning. He didn't wait for breakfast. Okay, they take off in the middle of the night because God has said God spoke. We respond. And he left for Egypt. And there is a fulfillment of prophecy in verse 15. He remained there until the death of Herod. And this was to fulfill what had been spoken of by the Lord through the prophet out of Egypt. I called my son. There's another prophecy being fulfilled here because Jesus is to identify with his people. Now, how do you think Herod's going to handle all this? The Magi were supposed to do what? Check back in, right? Tell me where the child is, and Herod's going to come down and worship him, i.e., he'll worship him in his own way. He'll kill him. You don't want no king. Well, look at verse 16. Then when Herod saw that he had been tricked by the Magi, what do you do when you're paranoid, when you're fearful of anybody that might try to usurp your throne? Look at him, verse 16. He became very enraged and he sent 
and slew all the male children who were in Bethlehem and all its vicinity from two years old and under, according to the time which he had determined from the Magi. So this is what he does. He realizes, whoa, the Magi didn't come back. So he takes matters in his own hands. And this is very typical of Herod. Remember when we actually looked at his life and studied him, this guy and his paranoia, he killed anybody that he thought might cross him, including his favorite sons or his favorite wife or his wife's mother. He just that's how he functioned. And so, you know what he does? He sends his soldiers down and listen, we're going to make this real easy. Any male two years old and under, you kill him. And so he did. He sends his soldiers in. And I want you to think about this, parents and grandparents. Two-year-old baby, if it's a boy, and these soldiers went in, and they killed, and they slaughtered these children. And there is wailing and weeping in the city of David. Verse 17, it says, when, what, what takes place here, he sends all these soldiers there. They, he's enraged. He sends them to Bethlehem, verse 16, and all its vicinity, two years old and under. From the time he determined for the Magi, he kills them. And verse 17 Then what had been spoken through Jeremiah, the prophet was fulfilled. A voice was heard in Ramah weeping and great mourning, Rachel weeping for her children. And she refused to be comforted because they were no more. And Rachel pictured for weeping of all the lost children in the Babylonian captivity when they were either killed or hauled off to Babylon, just prefigured the weeping that would take place in Bethlehem when Herod tried to kill the Messiah. But, you know, you cannot thwart God's plan. Herod probably thought that he had whatever little problem resolved. But, you know, Herod dies and he dies unsuccessful in killing God's king. Now, let me just give you a few details when Herod dies. Um, Herod is a treacherous, paranoid guy. What he does is prior to his death... He actually has the, the prominent cities, uh, citizens of Jerusalem rounded up and he has them incarcerated and he gives this order. When I die, and he knew he was going to die, he was suffering. He had uh, Josephus writes of all the difficulties he was having health wise. I mean, he was, had this painful terminal disease. He had not only bad breath, he was dying and it was evident and he looked like death. And so he makes this decree. Listen, when I die You kill all these citizens because he knew good and well, though he was this great builder. He was Herod the Great, that no one in Jerusalem would weep. In fact, they'd probably have a party the day he breathed his took his last breath. So he says, I want you to kill him because I want weeping in the city of Jerusalem. We can find from historical records, though, that Herod's sister at the time that Herod dies actually makes a countermand. And she actually is successful in keeping these Jewish citizens from being killed. But Herod is unsuccessful in killing the child. Do you know why? Because God is preserving his son. It's one of the ways that we know for certain that Jesus is God. Well, Herod dies. And so uh, you find here in verse 19, when Herod died, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt. And he said this, you can get up. And take the child and his mother and go into the land of Israel for those. You see that those it's not just Herod. There was obviously more than just Herod that wanted this child dead. He says, for those who sought the child's life are dead. So verse 21, Joseph's like, whoa, 
great. We can actually go back to our homeland. So Joseph got up and took the child and his mother and came into the land of Israel. And he's thinking things are pretty good. Look at this. God is making the way. He already knew all the miraculous events surrounding the birth of his child, that he was born of a virgin. I mean, he's fully aware that he had actually had heard from the angel of the Lord himself that this is God's son. He's God with us. He's like, wow, God is making the way. But notice this. When he, verse 22, he makes his way back into Israel. But when he heard that Archelaus was reigning over Judea in place of his father, Herod, he was afraid to go there. Then after being warned by God in a dream, he left for the regions of Galilee. Now, who is this Archelaus? Archelaus is one of three sons that Herod actually gives rulership over. So Herod's got this pretty big territory he's been given by Rome to oversee. When Herod dies, we can find from records that Herod at least seven different times changes his will. Okay. And he had a problem because he had a tendency of killing his kids. Okay. And so that made it trouble and especially his favorite ones. So he's left with three remaining boys here that he's trying to figure out, okay, what am I going to do here? So he actually divides his kingdom up Amongst his three boys. The first is Archelaus. He is 19 years old when he receives at his father's death, Judea, Samaria up to the north and Idumea, like where the Edomites live. Okay, so he's now going to be the ruler there. And then he gives Herod Antipas, Herod the Tetrarch. He's the the Herod you're familiar with. He's the guy, the, the second boy. He's the guy that like has John the Baptist executed. Or when you read about Jesus going before Herod and getting mocked and beat up by him. That's this Herod. That's the second Herod. And then you have Herod Philip. The reason that Joseph is so alarmed is that he has heard that Archelaus is running. At 19 years old, this successor to Herod's throne in the southern part of the kingdom, this guy had already established himself as absolutely wicked. He was his daddy's boy. For instance, shortly after Herod the Great dies, Archelaus, when he takes over, there was a disturbance that happened in the temple. Okay, this massive temple that Herod had constructed with all these pilgrims that had come. There was a disturbance that had taken place. Archelaus, he shows how heavy handed and how he works. He sent in his troops and the cavalry. They go charging in the temple and they just hack to pieces 3000 of these pilgrims who have come to worship on Passover. Well, can you imagine living in a country like that when this is your ruler? He was so heavy handed. He was so despised by the Jews and the Samaritans that the Jews and the Samaritans actually linked together their aristocracy. They sent a delegation to Rome. They got an audience with the emperor, Caesar Augustus, and they said this. If you do not remove Archelaus, you could expect there's going to be a full revolt. He is killing us. This guy is the epitome of evil. If you don't remove him, you should expect at the far eastern edge of your empire that is already so fragile that there's going to be a full revolt revolt because we are done with this. We can handle it no longer. And so even though Archelaus, he rules from like 4 B.C. to A.D. 6, about a 10 year period after receiving this delegation, Caesar Augustus does that. He actually removes Archelaus. He banishes him to Gaul, which is kind of like the area of France. And from then on, he starts appointing governors to rule this very hostile, um, difficult. It's kind of like a tinderbox of a part, a part of his kingdom. And so that's what he does. So Archelaus, that is who he's going with. That is why Joseph is so afraid. 
So he hears, verse 22, that Archelaus is reigning in the place of his father. He's afraid to go there. Because I'm sure Archelaus would want to just, to your, your, if he had any inkling that this kid, this boy Jesus, had been in Bethlehem, he'd just kill them all. That's how he functioned. Well, then verse 20, 20, at verse 22, then after being warned by God in a dream, he left for the regions of Galilee, and he came and lived in a city called Nazareth. This was to fulfill what was spoken through the prophets. He shall be called a Nazarene. Now, we're all very familiar with Jesus of Nazareth, but let me just kind of help you understand the picture and all what's going on here. First of all, that's where Joseph and Mary are from. Remember, they were living there. Mary, she becomes pregnant because the Holy Spirit overshadows her. And just like the angel said, she actually conceives a son. They have to make their way from Nazareth to where? Bethlehem. Why? Because there was a census, and that's what the Romans did. They counted people. They want to know how to tax people and who was all in their kingdom. So you had to go to the city of your, your fathers. And in the case of Joseph, because he is of the line of David, you got to go where? you got to go to the city of David. That is why they go to Bethlehem. So if that's been a big mystery to you, like, why is it that Mary and Joseph are kind of traveling around? Don't generally, if you're pregnant, you're going to have a baby. Don't you just stay at home? Well, you have to, they made their way to Bethlehem. And so that's what takes place here now. So that's Nazareth is their hometown. Now, when Nazareth had been a a community for some time, however, after the exile, it seems to have been abandoned, but it was later then populated and it was named Nasser. Okay, that is the Hebrew word for branch. You're like, hmm, that, that doesn't really do a whole lot for me. But let me just to kind of explain to you what's going on here. It seems like Nazareth was settled by people who were from the family and the lineage of David, i.e. that's why perhaps Mary and Joseph are living there. Living there. That is their family line. But when I say branch to the American mindset, that I mean, nothing to me. Tree, twig, shoot. What does that mean? But to the Jewish mind, to say branch was filled with all sorts of messianic overtones. You see, in the Hebrew scriptures and in all their Jewish writings, when they would refer to the Messiah, oftentimes they referred to him as the branch. And it was all based on Isaiah chapter 11, beginning in verse one, where it says this, then a shoot will spring forth from the stem of Jesse. That's David's father. And a branch from this, his root will bear fruit and the spirit of the Lord will rest on him. They they would refer to the Messiah as the branch. So the word branch in Hebrew, Nesser, that's what they named their town. It'd be the equivalent of like, hey, we're going to have this town here. We wanted to communicate that our hope is in God and his coming Messiah. Let's name our town. Messiah is our hope. OK, where are you from? I'm from Messiah is our hope to call your town. The branch Nesser was to identify very strongly in God's messianic promise that he was going to send a savior whom the spirit would rest upon. He would be one who had come from God. Now, great name, great hopes among the city's founders. Our town is Nesser, branch, speaking of the Messiah. But Nazareth came to be a place that was highly despised, primarily because it was so far north. It's between the Sea of Galilee and the Mediterranean Sea. The reason it was so despised, though, is because it became a a Roman garrison for all their soldiers. And so all these Roman soldiers and all of their deportment and their behavior and the things that they did and their disreputable trappings, they are stationed in Nazareth. This is kind of a rough 
Roman soldier town. It had a bad reputation. A lot of bad, wicked things took place there. And so to come from Nazareth, they considered Nazareth a despised place. And so when you think about Jesus in his growing up years, he didn't grow up in a quaint little community that Norman Rockwell would paint. He grew up in a place where he was confronted with wickedness, hatred, tension, problems, sinners all the time. And yet it is in this environment that this Messiah, he grows up. And when Jesus is called a friend of sinners, he had learned to be a friend of sinners from a very early age. Because that's the community in which he lived. Well, we're talking about how do we know that Jesus is really God. One of the things I want it crystal clear in your mind is his deliverance that he experiences from his enemies. Let me give you another one. Uh, You may have missed this there, but notice in verse 23, he points out this, that he lives in Nazareth. This was to fulfill what was spoken through the prophets. He was to be called a Nazarene. Now, there's not a specific prophecy that says that Jesus should be called the Nazarene. But what he's referring to there is that the prophet's general tone as that the Messiah, when he comes, he's going to be despised. And that is exactly what people from Nazareth were. And this is his hometown. This is where he comes from. For instance, remember when Nathaniel, one of Jesus' early followers, he's picked up by Philip. And remember, they said, hey, we have found the Messiah. Really? Where's he from? He's from Nazareth. He's Jesus from Nazareth. You remember what Nathaniel said? What? Can anything good come out of Nazareth? That's a despised place. That was kind of the mindset amongst the Jews. And yet, it is fulfilling a prophecy. If you want to see the humility of Christ, think he comes and he enters into humanity. He takes on human flesh. He comes and he enters and lives in a place that's despised. Why? Because he's God's son on God's mission and he's fulfilling prophecies. As we go through the Gospel of Matthew, as we've even started, notice time and time again, he gives a prophecy. He shows how Jesus fulfills it. He, he starts in, remember, chapter 1, verses 1 through 17. He is the fulfillment of both the Abrahamic and the Davidic covenant. He is from the line of Abraham. He's the promised king of David. They show it right away. He, he is going to be born of a virgin. Remember that in Matthew chapter 1, verse 23? And so he is. He is to be born in Bethlehem, Matthew 2, verses 5 through 6. It's been prophesied, so it happens. He is going to be protected. God is going to deliver his son, and so it is, Matthew chapter 2. That he's going to call his son out of Egypt. How in the world are you going to get Jesus into Egypt? Well, it's recorded right here. Why is that important? Because Jesus must fulfill all the prophecies that are made, not just some of them or a few of them, all of them. He is called out, chapter 2, verse 15, out of Egypt, and he is going to be despised, Matthew chapter 2, verse 23. Why is this written? You see all these fulfillment of prophecies? It is to make crystal clear in every single person's mind, this Jesus, he is truly God's son. There is no one like him. Now, in case you're like still reeling and wrestling with these issues, is Jesus really God? Well, why don't you take a look at his ministry? And beginning in chapter 3, we have John the Baptist, and he is going to arrive on the scene, and he is going to start giving the distinctives 
of the Messiah's ministry. His ministry and what Jesus does on earth is extremely unique and very different than anything that's happened before. Now, there had been 400 years. They're called the 400 silent years from the last time there was spoken in Malachi, last prophet, 400 years of silence. They're called the silent years. And then onto the scene, just like the, the Old Testament ends, Okay, there is going to be one. He's going to be coming in the spirit and power of Elijah, and he is going to proclaim and announce the way of the Lord. After 400 years, chapter three, verse one, John the Baptist arrives on the scene and notice chapter three, verse one. He came preaching in the wilderness of Judea, saying, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Now, here comes John the Baptist, and we're going to find out, man, he is he, he looks the part, okay? He lives in the wilderness. He's in the desert. He eats bugs. This guy doesn't mess around. He's afraid of no one. And he has a message. Now, it's very interesting. Mary actually visits John the Baptist's mother, Elizabeth. And it's very likely that Jesus and John the Baptist were cousins, okay? And so it was very likely that Jesus knew John the Baptist. Perhaps they saw him at different times. But John the Baptist arrives on the scene. He is God's called out prophet to make ready the way of the Lord. And one of the distinctives he's going to tell what the ministry of Jesus is, is that he is going to call people to repent. See what he says in verse two. This is his theme message. Repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Now, what does this word repent mean? Well, It's not this. I'm thinking a little bit differently about God or about my sin. No, to repent means to literally not only change your thinking, but a complete 180 in your life. To be repentant is to not only recognize the situation in your sin and your offense toward God, but to actually be sorrowful and remorseful. When when we when you look at people who God is truly bringing to himself, you will see that they are repentant, not this. We confuse it with regret. Oh, I got caught. Man, this is really, you know, I made a big mess of things and I really hate how this is affecting me. That's regret. Repentance is God be merciful. Me. I am a sinner. What I have done is absolutely wrong. And you see brokenness and humility with it. And so that is his message. You see, he's calling for a change of heart, a change of life. He's calling for brokenness and humility. And so verse three, for this is the one referred to by Isaiah, the prophet, when he said, John, the Baptist is saying, I'm the fulfillment of what is written. The voice of one crying in the wilderness. And that's where he's at. He comes from the wilderness. He looks like he's been in the wilderness for his life. And he says, make ready the way of the Lord. Make his paths straight. When a king would travel in the east, this is what they did. You had people that went before you and they cleaned up the road. Any potholes, that is not going to work. Okay, so the little department of of the uh, interior would go in and they would actually go and fix all the roads. They'd make things straight. They'd get any rubble, any rocks out of the way because they wanted the path straight so the king could travel in ease. He had a clear path. John the Baptist says, I am one in the desert and I am calling away to make the spiritual path straight. And it begins with you repenting because the kingdom of God is near. God's kingdom, his king, is soon going to arrive on the scene. He's coming and my job is to make his path clear. By the way, 
Do you know how Jesus begins his public ministry? The exact same words. Matthew chapter 4, verse 17. Jesus says the exact same word. Repent for the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Now he's calling for the roads to be made smooth. And look at John. Now John himself had a garment of camel's hair and a leather belt around his waist and his food was locusts and wild honey. Okay. Now, this is the this is what people that lived in the desert. This is what they wore. And this camel hair, they would weave that so tight it would actually be waterproof. OK, so can you imagine wearing like gunny sack? But I mean, like serious gunny sack, like you're not going to penetrate it. And he's got this leather belt and he eats bugs and honey locusts. Now you're going, whoa, OK. Now, if I'm getting you kind of hungry for lunch, we were thinking about having a little locust dinner afterwards, but we opted not to today. But. This is actually, this was very common food. In fact, that's how they got their protein, by eating these grasshoppers. By the way, Americans, a lot of folks in Africa and the Middle East, the poor, they still eat grasshoppers and locusts because it is their means of survival. And honey, of course, is the sweetest thing that they ever had. And so this is what he eats. He eats buds, grasshoppers, locusts, and wild honey. And he makes a scene God is using him. And when God sends forth his word, people respond and they'll travel a distance to do it. Look at verse five. Then Jerusalem was going out to him. OK, they're flocking. They're making their way from Jerusalem. They're trekking all the way over to the Jordan River. OK, that's a pretty serious hike through some very difficult wilderness environment. They make their way. They're coming from all Judea and all the district around the Jordan. And verse six. And they were being baptized by him in the Jordan River as they confess their sins. Now, this is really interesting. You see, the Messiah's ministry it's going to be one that calls people to repentance. And when they come, these people come from all over Jerusalem, Judea. They come to Jesus, to John. They hear this message about repentance, about this coming king. Now, what they do to identify with John's message that indeed God's kingdom calls for repentance and brokenness is that they are baptized. Now, don't think like. They've probably never seen this before. And John had to explain, well, we're going to do something really radically different here. Once you get in the river. No, the Jewish people were actually very familiar with baptism. You see, in order to become a part of the Jewish nation, if you were a Gentile, you were called a proselyte. If you wanted to become a Jew, you recognize that truly Yahweh, the God of the, the Bible, though, is the one true God. You wanted to identify with the Jewish people. They had a little system that you would go through, okay? And one of the things that you had to do is that you had to be baptized. And the other elements they had, you had sacrifice, you had circumcision for the males, and then you also had to memorize sections of the Old Testament law, okay? And so if you were going to become part of the Jewish nation as an aspect of truly becoming a worshiper of the one true God, you were baptized. The word baptized, baptizo, means to immerse. OK, it actually comes from the dyer's trade. So and they were very familiar with this. So like say you had a piece of cloth and you wanted to dye it like purple or red or whatever. You would dip it completely into the dye and you would pull it out. And what would happen is that cloth now would have identify with that color. It'd be changed because that that color now that dye was now a part of that fabric. OK, and so that's what the word baptize means. It means to immerse. It doesn't mean to sprinkle or throw a little water at it. It means to immerse. And that's what's taking place here. Now, the fascinating thing is this. 
these were primarily Jewish people that were coming out to John. They were hearing his message about repent. And even though they despised the Gentiles, their heart was of such as that they recognized it's not based on our family lineage that we're right with God. It's that we have the faith of Abraham and we believe that we must be broken and humble before God. Not taking pride in our past, in our family lineage, but being broken and repentant, just like John is calling. And in order to identify with that message, what to show that, they would be symbolically baptized in this Jordan River. And when they're doing that, notice verse 6, they are confessing their sins. When you see people coming to God, there's going to be a willingness to identify with him. And there is going to be a confession of sin. It's not like the Hindus, like when I was over in India here a couple months ago, where you just like, sure, I'll add Jesus to my pantheon of gods. That sounds good. Want to get all my bases covered? No. If you're going to come to God, you will come on his terms. And with that, there is repentance, brokenness, and a confessing of sin. Well, that's what we find here. It's all part of the distinctive of the Messiah's ministry. Let me show you something else here. You need to know this about this coming Messiah. He is the coming judge of all people. Look at verse 7. Now, when, they, when he saw that many of the Pharisees, this is John, seeing Pharisees and Sadducees coming for baptism, he said to them, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Now we're introduced to the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Now, first of all, these are people, two groups of people that hated each other, tremendously so. The Pharisees were small. They were the conservatives. They were legalistic and they had all sorts of rules. They they memorized lots of the Old Testament, but they had all sorts of rules so they would never break God's law. The Sadducees, on the other hand, they were pretty much out doing their own program. They they didn't believe in anything supernatural. All that miracle stuff. That's nonsense. We don't believe in that. They held to only the first five books of the Bible, the books of Moses, the law. That's it. Anything else? Didn't have anything going with that. They didn't believe in any resurrection. They didn't believe in the angels. So the Pharisees were ritualists. The Sadducees, they were rationalists. Pharisees, they were legalists. The Sadducees, they were the liberals. And the Pharisees were the separatists. And the Sadducees, they were like the compromisers and the rationalizers and the political opportunists. In fact, they had it in pretty good with Rome. Well, these two groups, do you see this? For the Jewish reader, this would be startling. They were coming and they were coming together out for baptism. Now, now for you to understand this, like for us in Texas, imagine if the Aggies and the Longhorns were going to come together for a mutual appreciation society for each other's athletic program. Okay, like if if that would ever happen and I see people, well, that could never happen. Like, we, you know, the Aggies, we're going to change our fight song. You know, we've decided we're going to be nice now. You would know that something was up, right? It just didn't get to happen. To see the Pharisees and the Sadducees coming together, something was definitely up. And you will find this a no hallmark greeting, you brood of vipers, okay? But John is doing this for a point. He's saying, you will have God on his terms. These people had been leading astray the nation. And if you think that God takes it lightly when leaders lead his people astray, you are mistaken. John the Baptist could care less what people think about him. He's interested in truth and people truly knowing God and going in his way. And he's saying, what are you doing? You think you're going to just come out here and just kind of do the little baptism thing because it looks good and sounds good. And a lot of Jewish people are doing that. No way. 
First of all, you've got to be broken over your sin. And you are not. And so he warns them. He says, you brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Are you truly fleeing it? Are you truly broken? No, you're not. And he says, verse eight, therefore, bear fruit in keeping with repentance. If you are truly broken over your sin, it'll be evident. And friends, by the way, that is always true. When you got folks that are truly broken over their sin and their wickedness and their waywardness and the things they've done to their family and others. You find brokenness, humility, confession of sin. That is the fruit of repentance. And these boys didn't have it. He says, verse nine, and do not suppose that you can say to yourselves, well, (laughs) wait, we don't have to do anything like that. We have Abraham for our father. For I say to you that from these stones, God is able to raise up children to Abraham. Don't think that just because you have Abraham in your lineage that you've got a passport to heaven. It doesn't work that way. Like the saying goes, God has no grandchildren. You have to have the faith of Abraham. You've got to believe just because his blood is flowing through your veins. That doesn't make any difference at all. That doesn't make you a true follower of God. Your heart has to be right with him. And he says, you know what? Let me drive this home real clearly. Let me paint you the real picture of what's going on. Verse 10. The axe is already laid at the root of the trees. Therefore, every tree that does not bear good fruit, it cuts down and thrown into it is cut down and thrown into the fire. This is the situation. Judgment is just about ready to come because the king is coming. The axe is like laid to the root of the tree. You know, if you cut the roots from your tree, the tree, what it dies, it's it's no more. He says judgment is just about ready to come. Now would be a real good time to truly repent. He says, friends, this isn't about me. I merely point the way to one who is coming. Let me just show you who this is. He says, verse 11, as for me, I baptize you with water for repentance. If you truly are broken, you would identify with this water baptism. You are preparing the way. You're saying, God, I am ready for your king. I am repentant. I've been baptized. I am waiting for the king, which is, by the way, different than Christian baptism. But he who is coming after me, he's mightier than I. And I am not fit to remove his sandals. The one who's coming, the lowest job would be to take someone's sandals off. I mean, you're like the lowest slave if that's your job. He says, one's coming. I'm not even fit to do that. And he's going to baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. And his winnowing fork is in his hand and he will thoroughly clear his threshing floor and he will gather his wheat into the barn and he will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. This Messiah who's coming, he is absolutely the judge of all people. I am not even fit to even untie his sandals. But you know who he is? He is God. And he says, my whole life is to point to him. You know something about Jesus' ministry? He's the coming judge. And let me give you one other thing about his ministry that's so unique and distinct. I I don't know if you you caught this here, but he gives the life of the spirit to those who are identified with him. He says this Messiah who's coming, he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. There is one coming who will give you 
the Holy Spirit. Your life will be touched by God. It will be filled with his spirit. And so what's going to happen, he says, is there's going to be a great separation. Those who are truly repentant and receive the Messiah, they'll be filled with the spirit. They'll be marked out as his. But those who reject him, who will not repent, they're going to be judged. And there will be a baptism of fire that will come that will bring great judgment. And notice how he talks about it. He talks about this threshing floor and he's got his winnowing fork in his hand. And you're like, oh, boy, what, what is that? Well, this is what they would do. They would take. At the harvest time, they would cut all the grain down, so unless you got wheat, okay, or barley, and you'd bring it to a threshing floor. It'd be a hard dirt floor, or maybe it'd be stone. And then they'd take their animals with a threshing sledge, and they would just, they run these animals and that sled all the way over it, all the time, for a long period of time. And what would happen is the kernels of the grain would get separated from the shaft. Now, you still have all the grain of that shaft all mixed together, so what do you do? Well, you take this winnowing fork, and it looks like a pitchfork made out of wood, and they would take it in there and they'd throw up all the grain and the wind would blow all the chaff and the grain would settle down. And they'd do that for a while until all the chaff was separated out of there. And so what they do is they collect all the grain and they put it in their barn. They're going to live on this and they'll sell it. And the chaff, they'd rake up into piles and they'd burn it. And, he's, and what John is saying is that the Messiah is coming and what he's going to do is he's going to gather those who are truly his. He'll actually give them his spirit. He's going to gather them to himself. And for those who will not have him and will not have him on his terms, they're like the chaff that the wind is going to drive away and eventually they face the judgment of fire. Now, if you're saying, well, you know what? I've, I've taken this all in. I'm just not positive that Jesus is God. Give me one more just absolutely clear proof. You know, we've covered some pretty good ones. And the fact that Jesus' ministry gives the Holy Spirit, this was the fulfillment of the new covenant in Ezekiel chapter 36. Remember, he says where God is going to give his spirit to his people. They will be able to follow his commandments because they have his spirit. All of this is to show you that Jesus is the one. But if you want one final proof, Look at the declaration made by his father. Look at verse 13. Then Jesus arrived from Galilee at the Jordan, coming to John to be baptized by him. As soon as he speaks of the Messiah, who is the coming judge, but also the giver of the Holy Spirit, Jesus arrives and he shows up at the Jordan and he's coming to be baptized by him. Can't you just picture the scene here? But John, he tried to prevent him saying, whoa, whoa, wait a second. I have need to be baptized by you and you come to me. John's like, wait, there is no sin in you. I am calling sinners to repent and you are not a sinner. In fact, you're the one that I'm speaking of. Why? Why would you want to be baptized? But look what Jesus says. Jesus answering and said to him, permit it at this time, for it is in this way that is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. And then he permitted him. You see, Jesus is baptized not because he's a sinner, but because he's fulfilling the all righteousness. He has to do this because in order for Jesus to give his righteousness to his people, He's got to follow all the moral and the ethical demands of the law. And so he does. He's going to do it in our place. Jesus explains to me, it's not because I'm a sinner. It's because I'm fulfilling the father's will. And I always do the will of my father. That is why I must be baptized. And at this point, look at verse 16. 
After being baptized, Jesus came up immediately from the water and behold, the heavens were opened and he saw the spirit of God descending as a dove and lighting on him. And behold, a voice out of the heavens said, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. You want great proof that Jesus is truly God? Listen to the father and he makes this utterance. This is my son. By the way, you actually see God, the father, God, the son, God, the Holy Spirit revealed. You want to see the true nature of God and who God really is? Look at verse 16 and 17. You have the father making the declaration. You have the spirit of God coming upon him, commissioning him and truly anointing and pointing him out that he is the Messiah. And you have the son of God standing there. And so you have God, the father, he is making the proclamation, the spirit of God glorifying the son and the Messiah himself standing there. And friends, this is written so that you and I truly can know that Jesus is indeed God, that you can trust him, that he can transform your life. Let me tell you a couple things. First of all, if you're going to have a relationship with God and honor him, you cannot do so apart from. From his son, whom he says, my beloved son, the one in whom I love. Second, you know, when we see this, this Jesus who comes across is pretty meek at different times. From the very beginning, it's established. He is the ultimate ruler. He is the almighty king and God. And I'll tell you, from studying this passage, it brings us to a point of humility. that the son of God, the eternal son of God, would take on such a role as to become a man and actually be baptized and fulfill all righteousness. Friends, that means that we can truly trust him. I don't know what you're facing, difficulties, hardship, relationship, breakdown, but you and I, we can trust him. You can put your confidence in him. And he's promised that he can transform your life. He is the one who can take away your sins, Matthew 1, 21. And he can do it because he is truly God. You see, the identity of Jesus Christ is unmistakable. And what is most important in life is what you and I believe about Christ. Let's pray. Lord, we're at one of those moments where you have our complete attention. And all sorts of chaos in our life and problems and bills and school starting. And and yet you have seen it fit to bring us here to have the word open, your word, that we might see that Jesus is indeed God. And so, Father, if there is someone here who has never truly placed their faith in the Son as their Savior, would they do so right now with me and say, Lord, you know about me and my sin, trying to even do you and relationship with you on my own way. I am repentant and broken, and I turn from my sin, and I trust in the Savior. And I believe in Christ, the God-man. And for all of us, Lord, Would you increase our confidence in him? Would you find us having great joy and delight in him who is Savior, Lord, King, and God? For your glory we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.